Now, I love getting to speak here because there's something about college, this stage of life, where perhaps more than any other moment or stage in your life, you're really wrestling with what you believe. And it's not just because you're obviously here to college encountering, learning new ideas, you've left home, but there's something about deciding major, what directions you're heading in life that leads us into this place of questioning, what do I actually believe? What's my purpose? What am I headed towards? And hopefully you are grappling with those questions. That's where I want even this morning to be an invitation to think more deeply with me. And I highly doubt that you're going to arrive at the end of your life and think, man, I wish I would have checked out more, right? I wish I would have spent more time staring at my phone and less considering my purpose and what I was living for in the first place. So just a quick invitation, would you actually hang with me this morning, stay with me, and consider these things. But I also love speaking here at Sterling College because although I know this is a Christian institution, like Sterling College is Christian, obviously, I know that the far majority of you Christians, uh, rather, sorry, the far majority of you students here are not Christians. You, you have your doubts, you have your questions. There's a whole spectrum of belief here at this college where some of you are very passionate about following Jesus and others of you are very passionate about not following Jesus. And I'm guessing the far, far majority of you simply just don't care that much, right? So I know this room, if we could say, it's full of doubters. You have your questions. You're not convinced by the claims of Jesus. And even, honestly, if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm sure you have your doubts and your questions as well. And this is why it's, I think, such good news to hear this. Doubt is a part of discipleship. Doubt, wrestling with these questions, is a part of growing and learning to know who Jesus is. I'd say it's difficult, if not impossible, to arrive at any meaningful truth, what's actually real in life, without having to grapple with these gritty questions and issues. You have to do this if you want to be a thorough thinker, wise, mature, living life to the full, actually considering things. You have to question, you have to doubt. It's a part of growth and discipleship. And it's the same thing with being a Christian. I want to clarify this. Being a Christian does not mean you somehow magically arrived at 100% certainty that God exists and that Jesus is who he says he is. That's not what a Christian is. It's not someone who's just grown up in a Christian home and continues to wear that label or wants to stay away from difficult subjects and wants to remain in naive belief. That's not what being a Christian is. Doubt is a part of discipleship. Now, I think it's really fascinating to see this in the early biography of Jesus written by a disciple named Matthew. We call this the Gospel of Matthew, but see how it lays this out. Jose's been taking you through this passage in Matthew chapter 28. I want to read this. I think it's pretty shocking to me. It says this in 16 through 20, this early biography of Jesus. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Did you see that line there in the middle of the section? It says in verse 17, at the very end of this book, there's not anything more than what I read. That, that's the end of Matthew. And here in verse 17, it says, some of them worshipped, but also some of them doubted. And this is shocking to me, because these disciples, according to Matthew, have been following Jesus for three years. And according to Matthew, they have seen Jesus heal the sick. They have seen him multiply fish and loaves and feed over 5,000 people. They have seen him betrayed and crucified and buried, and now they see him alive again, and they are doubting, Matthew says. Why in the world would Matthew include this comment? This is strange to me. Why would he say some doubted? I actually find this to be a bit helpful, and I hope this helps you as well. I think it shows us the reliability of what Matthew is speaking here. It shows us that his main concern is not telling us things that would be maybe most convincing or what we want to hear. He's telling us what actually happened in the story. So for instance, if you were living 2,000 years ago when these Gospels were written, and as some say, I don't believe this is true, but if as some say the Gospels were written by people wanting to make a new religion or a community legend that has grown and you're wanting to bring in new followers, the last thing you would do, no, is to include at the very end of your book that Jesus' closest followers, his main disciples, are doubting him. Wouldn't that be the worst way to end your book if you're trying to gain new followers? But again, see, this is not Matthew's purpose to tell us what we want to hear or what's most convincing. We see the reliability of his witness as he's willing to share even these embarrassing details because his greatest concern is telling us what actually happened in the story. There's a reliability to this witness. So doubt is a part of discipleship, this wrestling that the disciples are going through questioning who Jesus is. Is he really resurrected? But I also love that this question here that they're facing, this doubt that they're in the midst of, it's not just here at the end of the book, but this is something that's in all of the Gospels, this honesty about the wrestling of Jesus' disciples. It's not a new thing here, but happens all through the Gospels. For instance, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and they collected 12 loaves of bread and fish that were left over, says later that some of them did not get it. His disciples didn't understand fully what had happened because their hearts were hardened. They were questioning. Or again, Jesus is perhaps most well-known follower, Peter. A moment, incredibly, when he's walking on the water out to Jesus and he shifts his vision off of him, begins to doubt and sink. Or again, one of Jesus' disciples named Thomas, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's saying to the other followers, I will not believe that this happened until I put my finger where the spear went into his side and until I see the nail marks in his hands and feet, I will not believe. 
doubt is full and overwhelming Thomas. So again and again, throughout these stories, biographies of Jesus, we see his disciples struggling with belief and doubt. It's not where they're meant to remain, but it's a process of growing and following Jesus. Doubt is a part of discipleship. But I'm not just amazed that Matthew would include this about the disciples. I also think it's incredible Jesus' reaction to the disciples. As he knows that they are questioning, doubting, even after three years of following and being with him, Jesus does not say, you got to get off the mountain. You can't be my follower anymore. I'm sorry if you're doubting me, you're kicked out of the band. You should know and believe in me fully by now, and if you're not, too bad, you're out. That's not Jesus' reaction. Instead, he invites them into his mission with him. He knows they are doubting and yet still invites them to participate in this renewal, this transformation of people around the world, even with their doubt. Jesus is inviting them in more deeply. I think this is because Jesus knows more than anyone the extraordinary shock of what he's calling us to believe. That Jesus knows that he's calling us to believe that he is the God-man, born as a baby, raised and lived a perfect life, that he has healed the sick, raised the dead, and that Jesus himself, the God-man, has been hung on a cross where he suffocates to death over the course of several hours. He's buried in a grave, and three days later, the God-man is raised from the dead. If anything, the normal reaction to this kind of story should be shock and doubt and questioning. The most disturbing reaction to this kind of story or news, the worst way we could react is apathy. That's the most irrational way to respond to the story of Jesus. Hearing he's been raised from the dead, God himself has come to rescue humanity, and we're like a shrug. That's the one response that doesn't make sense. So if you're not a bit offended by even, shocked by the story of Jesus, stay with me. I think you might not be hearing it in the first place. You probably have never genuinely considered how unbelievable, transformative, and important, and audacious the claims of Jesus are. He knows more than anyone what a shocking thing he's asking us to believe. This is why, again, the Gospels show us doubt is a part of discipleship. We must grapple with these gritty questions. And again, hear me, being a Christian is not someone that just continues in the same belief that they were raised in. It's not someone that wants to stay in naive things so they're not challenged with new beliefs. Being a Christian is not someone who likes to feel good about themselves and so wants to believe these truths about God. A Christian is someone who's grappled with the claims of Jesus and find them to be more reasonable and convincing than anything else. That's what it means to be a Christian. Doubt is a part of discipleship. I want to pause, though, and just sit in. Okay, we got these doubts. We maybe have these questions. What are some of them, and how do we grow through them? 
Doubt is a part of discipleship, but it is not the ultimate goal and aim of discipleship. We want to move through doubt into deeper confidence and trust in who Jesus is and what he's building in our lives. How do we do that? There's a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller, and he tells a story about a man who grew up with a general belief in God, and when he reached his college years, like many of you, he was assailed with questions and doubts about God and left his childish, maybe, faith that he had grown up with behind. And he remained that way for decades, decades of his life. This is a pretty normal story in our modern world of people growing up in faith, feeling they learn more about the world and leaving faith behind. Deconversion stories. But Keller says, as this man started to come to his church, not sure what prompted him to start coming, over the course of several months, this man began to find faith more plausible, began to be increasingly intrigued by the claims of Jesus, and wrestling with what is actually true. And he, Tim Keller says, interestingly, he learned to doubt his doubts. He learned to question his assumptions about the world. What do I mean by this? How do you doubt your doubts? Tim Keller, he shares a, a blogger, an atheist, who wrote this on his blog. I think it captures well many of the questions and objections people have to Christianity. It says this, The first cause that plants the initial seed of doubt varies from person to person. However, some of the most common reasons include meeting a real atheist and finding that they are not the immoral, unhappy misanthropes the believer has been led to expect, witnessing a good and faithful fellow believer suffer horribly, seemingly for no reason, witnessing institutionalized corruption or hypocrisy in the believer's religious hierarchy, realizing the basic unfairness of the doctrines of hell and salvation, or finding an unanswerable contradiction or error in the believer's scripture of choice. I think this atheist blogger rightly names many of the objections people have, maybe some of the objections you have. I'm not saying this is all of them, but I think captures a good many of them that people feel. And this is actually what that man who came to Keller's church, these are the kinds of questions he was wrestling with. This, these were his objections to Jesus, why he left the faith. But again, he began to grow and realize that his objections to Christianity were grounded on false beliefs. Hear me, he began to look underneath his assumptions and his objections and began to realize my doubts are not built on a solid foundation. He was learning to doubt his doubts. For clearly, it's not only Christians who have ideas that they believe in, that we put our trust and faith into. Even if you are secular, do not believe in God, you also have ideas. You are trusting that you believe, that you put your faith in, that you do not have 100% proof for. We all have belief. Are you questioning and doubting your assumptions and beliefs? You have to learn to doubt your doubts. For instance, what did this look like? This man, he began to see that each one of these objections wasn't solid and moved beyond them into trust in Jesus. How so? What did this look like? 
I just want to address one of these that Keller, he says is the hardest of the bunch. Actually, I don't know, you might disagree, but he, he draws out this hypocrisy in religious institutions and in Christians that so many people see and have been hurt by. I'm sorry for some of you who were at King's Cross this past weekend. I'm going to be repeating some information here, but I saw a really interesting study recently done by the Episcopal Church on people's perceptions of Christians. And not surprisingly, Christians had pretty nice things to say about their fellow Christians. They're loving, they're compassionate. But when non-religious people were asked about what characteristics stood out to them about Christians, their main answers were that they were hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous, and arrogant. Those were non-religious people's main thoughts about Christians. That's, that's a difficult list. If you're a Christian, we should mourn over that, that that's what non-Christians think of us. So clearly people are struggling with the hypocrisy that they see in Christians. What do we say about this? I think, first of all, it's just maybe helpful to see, obviously, that not everyone who claims to follow Jesus is actually following Jesus. That as you see hypocrisy in Christians, what you're really wanting is for them to be more Christian, you're wanting them to be more like Jesus. You're not objecting maybe to the standard, but to the lack of evidence in their life. And Jesus would agree with you. He said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. But even more, stay with me. This, is, this hypocrisy, this judgmentalism, this self-righteousness, I believe is built on a very unhealthy religious idea that Jesus objects to. For instance, often in many churches and religious environments, there's this implicit teaching that you are accepted by God and valued and received by him based on your own goodness and morality. So it's because you don't party much, you don't swear much, you don't celebrate Halloween or whatever moralistic practice you got, because you do or don't do certain things, God likes and approves of you. Do you see this? Have you heard this kind of thing in churches? And so, really, your acceptance from God is based in you. It's about what you've done or not done. Therefore, you have reason to look down on other people. I keep my life clean. I'm better. God likes the way I live. But you, therefore, you see self-righteousness. You see hypocrisy. You see people being judgmental. But hear me, the teaching of Christianity is the exact opposite. It's not that you are accepted because of your good works or your morality. The gospel teaches us that we are only accepted by God because of what he has done for us. We are saved, hear me, only because of divine initiative and his kindness towards us. It's because God has sought us out when we were astray. It's because God delivered us by his own death. It's because God gave himself for us. It's all the work of God that achieves our salvation so that we know him. And do you see how if you believe this, that you are ultimately only in relationship with God because of his work for you, it would humble you. Why would I have any reason to look down on other people? Why would I have any reason to boast? I only know God because of his kindness, not my own goodness. It sets you free. So the teaching of Christianity, the gospel, is literally anti-self-righteousness. It should undermine us. But this just tells me how little this gospel is known in churches when I see how non-Christians 
perceived Christians. You with me? This is why we need that all the more. So, begin to question your doubts. Begin to doubt your doubts. Don't just assume that your assumptions are based on solid foundations. I want, I want to wrap up here, though, with one more question. This might be some of our doubts, but what were the disciples in this story wrestling with? What were their doubts? Maybe not hypocrisy. What were they wrestling with? There's one question that all of Christianity stands or falls on. One question that everything in Christianity hinges on, and that is, was Jesus raised from the dead? If Jesus was not raised from the dead, this is the greatest hoax of all of history, and it's an absolute tragedy that so many people have given their lives to following Jesus. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, that means his claims about himself are real and true, and that changes everything. Not just the way we view ourselves, the way we view one another and reality and the future. It changes everything. Let's see what this does to your objections. If you really believe, like Jesus, I am convinced that you were raised from the dead, but I really know some kind, wonderful people that don't believe in you, so I'm sorry I can't follow you. That makes no sense. Or again, Jesus, I'm convinced you were actually God in the flesh, raised from the dead, but I ran into a hypocritical Christian last week. I can't follow you. That doesn't make any sense. If Jesus is really raised from the dead, it changes everything about our world and our lives. That's the one thing that matters. Now, I think this is the objection that Jesus' disciples were wrestling with. Even as they'd followed him for three years, seen him crucified, knew he was buried, and he's raised from the dead, how do you not wrestle? Am I actually seeing what I'm seeing? Are you really raised from the dead? If one of my own friends was killed and I saw them alive later, I would, I would wrestle. Am I actually able to trust my senses? Am I seeing what I'm seeing? They are questioning Jesus' resurrection. Did this really happen? I think it's amazing, though, to see from church history, this is not where Jesus' disciples stayed. Every single one of them walked through these doubts and came to the other side and lived deeply committed lives to the mission of Jesus. Every single one of them lived for spreading this testimony about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And this was not exactly a popular message to go around preaching. This would cost them being put in prison, being beaten, betrayed, shunned, they're not exactly having wonderful vacations on the beach and fancy new cars given to them because of this gospel. It costs them dearly. And we know, again, from church history that every single one of these 12 main disciples of Jesus, everyone except for John, would give their lives. They would be killed because of their belief and testimony about Jesus. John himself, he was exiled into Patmos and died of old age later. He didn't exactly have it easy either, but all of them, except John, were killed because of their testimony for Jesus. And this is so important for us because it tells us something, that if anyone knew this story of Jesus accurately, it would be these disciples. And although people are genuinely willing to die for a lie that they might be deceived by, we know people are not willing to give their lives, sharing a message, suffering persecution, and ultimately dying for a message that they know is a lie. 
Nobody does that. Yet all of Jesus' disciples did die for this message. And if anyone knew its truthfulness and reality, it was his disciples. So how does seeing them move from their doubt into such committed lives help us wrestle and see that if they were willing to go such lengths and they were the best eyewitnesses of this story, how should that help me with my own questions? Jesus really was raised from the dead. So go ahead, Jose. We'll let you take it from here. Thank you. Yes. Let's give uh, Pastor Caleb Barrows a round of applause for preaching the gospel. Thank you, Caleb. Uh, warriors, you've heard the gospel. Now it's time to respond. If you do not know Christ and want to surrender your heart and give your life to Christ, come up, come to my office, talk to a friend, okay? Um, so if you'll please bow your head and close your eyes with me, and after I pray, you come up and uh, greet uh, Caleb. Father, we thank you. We understand doubt is real. Father, often in my life I doubt. More times than I want to confess. But Father, I thank you that your word is true. It is pure. It's living and active. Without error, it's all truth. And I thank you that Jesus is risen. I thank you that this is of first importance that Paul preached. I thank you that our preaching is not in vain. Father, would you uh, continue blessing the ministry at King's Cross. Continue using Caleb to disciple and mentor and spread this gospel in the community and throughout the state. But Father, more importantly, you understand where we are at. And Father, let's just surrender. I don't trust in myself anymore, but I will trust in you because Jesus is the anchor for our soul. We thank you for this day. May we just continue thinking about this message that we heard. In Christ and we pray. Amen.